Oh, good morning, everyone. My name is Kay. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 89, 1 through 4. I will sing of the Lord's loyal love forever. I will proclaim your faithfulness with my own mouth from one generation to the next. That's why I say, your loyal love is rightly built forever. You establish your faithfulness in heaven. You said, I made a covenant with my chosen one. I promised my servant David, I will establish your offspring forever. I will build up your throne from one generation to the next. Selah. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Annalise. The New Testament reading is found in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the one who is first over all creation, because all things were created by him, both the heavens and on the earth, the things that are visible and the things that are invisible, whether they are thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He existed before all things, and all things are held together in him. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the one who is firstborn among the dead, so that he might occupy the first place in everything, because all the fullness of God was pleased to live in him, and he reconciled all things to himself through him, whether things on heaven or in the heavens. He brought peace through the blood of his cross. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Thank you. My name is Eric. If you're able and have not already done so, please stand for the gospel reading, which is found in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 16. Now, when Jesus came to the area of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the human one is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. He said, And what about you? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Gospel of the Lord. Would you please remain standing with me as we pray this morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our mysterious, wonderful, triune God, one God in three persons, the blessed Trinity. We come before you today, your people, gathered together in your name by your spirit, and we ask you, the God who speaks, to speak to us. Would you continue to show yourself, reveal yourself to us, help us to see you high and lifted up, to see you in our lives, to see you in our world, to see what you're doing, to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Would you help us to see you this morning? 
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray, and all God's people said, amen, amen. You may be seated. Great to see you this morning. Cold and snowy day, and here you are. Well done. Please drive home safely. For those of you who didn't make it who are watching online, we love you. We hope that you are staying warm and safe there. My name is Jason. For those of you who are new or newer here, thanks for visiting with us this morning. I'm one of the pastors, our lead pastor. Uh, pastor Glenn has been in the UK for a little bit. He's actually back in town, uh, but up at New Life North today. So he'll be back next week to be with us. We are in the middle of a series, a long series called Who is God? A series that we've divided into three parts, talking about each person of the Trinity. So the last several weeks, we've been talking about God the Father. Today, we're going to shift and start talking about God the Son. And then after Easter, we're going to talk about God the Spirit. And so we'll be in this series all the way, uh, really, until the end of May. Uh, But today, we're, again, making that transition from talking about God the Father to talking about God the Son, to talking about Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Jesus, the Son of God. And Jesus is perhaps the most fascinating, the most influential, and the most polarizing figure in history. That if you think about the kinds of conversations that have happened around the person of Jesus, it has gone the full span of kinds of experiences, even just thinking about the way that his name is used. In his name, people have prayed. In his name, people have been baptized. In his name, people have dedicated kids. In his name, people have been healed. In his name, people have made great sacrifices. In his name, people have taken vows of poverty and given themselves to life among the least and the marginalized in his world. In his name, people have left their homes and traveled all over the world to proclaim his story. In his name, people have built hospitals and universities and established some of the greatest humanitarian efforts ever seen on the face of the planet. And also in his name, people have cursed and they've committed great atrocities. They've pulled off cons and they've committed abuse in his name. His image has been replicated over and over and over again. It's been replicated by some of the world's greatest artists have set their hand at trying to figure out what does this person look like. He's appeared on stained glass and on flannel graphs, on statues overseeing Brazil and bobbleheads on car dashboards. His image has been everywhere, often looking more European than Middle Eastern, more North than Jewish, which is its own problem. But all the time, no one actually really knowing for sure what did Jesus actually look like. He's been the subject of books and poems, songs, and oratorios, and movies, and musicals, and TV shows, and SNL sketches. We've seen everything from Handel's Messiah to Jesus Christ Superstar to Aslan to The Chosen. A whole gamut of representations of him in popular culture. And of course, he's been the subject of seemingly endless debates about who he actually is. Who is this Jesus? In the early church, even, his first followers had all kinds of debates. 
Is he divine? Is he human? Did he, was he divine and then became human and then became divine again? Was he human and then became divine? Or is he eternally and forever both? How do we understand this person? Those debates led largely to the development of the creeds, like the one we have posted out in the lobby, ways of the church trying to say, this is who we believe that Jesus is. And here's language that sort of helps us to try to understand and then we've seen recently in the post-Enlightenment West, other efforts to try to understand Jesus, where there's been an effort to try to sever the study of Jesus from the study of the church and the study of theology, where there's been scholars who've questioned the reliability of the Bible, the reliability of the Gospels. And so they've attempted to reconstruct Jesus's life, reconstruct his teaching around archaeology around the writings of other first century people like Josephus, or taking a critical look at the Gospels to try to say, okay, what do we think is actually going on here? Things that have been called the various quests for the historical Jesus. Some of you are familiar with the Jesus Seminar that rose up out of that in the 80s. What those scholars have sort of said is they agree that Jesus is a first century Jew who was baptized by John and crucified by the Romans. And after that, they can't agree on anything <laughs> about anything else about this person. Their ideas about his identity diverge greatly. Some believe that he was an end times prophet. Some he was a charismatic healer. Some a magician. Some a really good teacher. Some a religious reformer. Some a governmental or political uh, revolutionary. Some even claim Jesus was an anarchist. But all of these ideas about who this person actually is. For me, when I was a kid growing up, I heard about Jesus. Jesus was a name I was familiar with, and I'd heard some of the stories of Jesus. I had one of those children's story Bible kinds of things, not the cool ones they have now, but, you know, different ones. And I, I generally, I, I liked him. There wasn't anything about Jesus that I was like, yeah, I just don't like that at all. Um, but Jesus was a peripheral sort of character in my life. He was someone that, you know, this group of people over here at church that we went to every once in a while, they, they talked about him. And I heard these, you know, sort of stories. And I was like, yeah, I like what Jesus has to say. I like that love stuff. That's good. That forgiveness, that's hard. Sure. But he was somewhere on the edges. But then as a teenager, as a sophomore in high school, there was a series of events that happened in my life over a short period of time. My whole world kind of unraveled. And all the sense of sort of uh, order and predictability and stability and all the things that I sort of thought were to be true all kind of started to come apart in some ways. And in the midst of my confusion and my despair and my hurt and my grief, I walked up the street to my friend and neighbor's house, Ken Quinnis. He was my neighbor. He was my manager at the local grocery store. And he was my ex-girlfriend's dad. Uh, some of you have heard that story. And Ken pulled out a Bible and he began to talk to me about Jesus. And what I now realize is that he really introduced me to Jesus. The way that he talked about Jesus, the way that he presented Jesus to me, the way that Jesus showed up in that moment at his kitchen table, all of that conversation was different. It was new. It was really personal. And slowly what I found over the next couple of years is that Jesus moved from the periphery of my life to the very center. 
that Jesus began to occupy everything and begin to fill up everything in my life. And the way that I thought about life and death and meaning and purpose and significance, the way I thought about God and church and relationships and people, everything began to shift because of Jesus. And so over the last 27 years of following Jesus, I've been slowly learning more about him, getting to know him, following him, falling in love with him and seeing how he's changed every aspect of my life and being. And this morning we begin this conversation, then who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus that's been the subject of all of this debate and exploration and wonder and curiosity and and puzzlement? Who's this Jesus that's behind all of these incredible movements in the world? Who is this Jesus that has transformed so many individual lives? Who did he say that he was? Who did his followers say that he was? What did he do? Why does it matter Why are these things important for us? So we're starting really a seven-week conversation, and even in those seven weeks, we won't be able to say everything there is to say about Jesus. Even one of the gospel writers said, if we tried to write down everything, it would fill up more books than we could possibly imagine. So today, we're just going to look at one critical passage in the gospel of Matthew, where it really addresses this very question, where Jesus is in a conversation with some of his early followers, some of his early disciples, and they're having a conversation about his identity. They're having a conversation about really who is Jesus. So if you want to follow along, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 is where we begin, or you can follow along on the screens. And so now, when Jesus came to the area of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the human one is? Or your translation might say, who do people say the son of man is? This is a unique term uh, that shows up really prominently in an Old Testament book called Daniel. And it's specifically addressing this figure that shows up in Daniel that is a prophetic sort of look at there's going to be a time in the future where someone comes and establishes God's reign on the earth. And this figure has both looks like a human, the son of man, but has these divine qualities or divine authority about his person. And so there's all kinds of debates by the time of Jesus about who is the human one, who is the son of man. And so Jesus is entering into this conversation with his disciples. But interestingly, they've heard him describe himself this way more than anything else. Son of man is Jesus' favorite self-description. As he's used, referring to himself, he often refers to himself as the human one, as the son of man. So there's asking, hey, who do people say this is? This figure out of Daniel. And the disciples replied, well, some say it's John the Baptist and others Elijah or others Jeremiah or one of the other prophets that are reaching back into their history for all of these famous leaders and thinking, well, maybe one of them, maybe one of them will come back. Maybe one of them is actually this figure who is this divine human ruler. And his disciples do what so often we do. They just kind of repeat the theories of the day. Well, this is what we've heard. This is what people say. And so let's just repeat those again. It's actually easy for us to do the same thing with Jesus. 
And someone would ask us, like, hey, who do, who do people say Jesus is? It's easy for us to kind of reach to all these places. Well, you know, it's this and this. And, and to not really say anything definitive ourselves, but just to sort of repeat the theories that go on around him. And then Jesus said, well, what about you guys? He gets real personal. You can imagine him looking them in the eye and like, okay, guys, let's cut through all of this. What about you? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Let's move beyond all of that other conversation. Jesus gets straight to the point with his followers. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, bold and brash and quick to answer all the time, says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And then Jesus replied, happy are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Well done, man. You got it. Ding, 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 ding. And Jesus replied, happy are you because no human has shown this to you. Rather, my father who is in heaven has shown this to you. If you got asked this question, if Jesus asked you, If Jesus asked us, if Jesus asked me, who do you say that I am? How would you respond? What would the answer be? Jesus shows up, looks you in the eye just like he did his disciples and said, who do you say that I am? Peter, the very first thing that comes out of his mouth, he says, you are the Christ. It's a term that's being used. It's not Jesus's last name. It's a title that's being used. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. The word means the anointed one. It actually actually technically means the one who's been smeared. There is a sense that people would take oil and they'd smear it on somebody as a way of sort of recognizing that they've been set apart for a specific purpose. It's kind of a descriptive nickname. When I was a senior in high school, I had the really bright idea as most seniors in high school do, uh, of shaving my head like down on the lowest level uh, that you can on the the razor thing uh, and then bleaching it. Um, So I I looked bald, but I wasn't. What I didn't expect to find was that my head comes to a very unusual point. So it's not just like my hair. My hair follows the contour of my head. I have this, this point. And so all of my friends from my senior in high school began to call me Wedge. It was a descriptive nickname, not quite as glamorous as the smeared one, the anointed one, but it was a designated nickname. It was a designated term. It was a a title that indicated a specific role, a specific role that God had ordained. It was used to priests. It was used to prophets. Most often, though, it was used of the king. And the, the term carried with it in the first century this great deal of hope this great deal of expectation, this great deal of anticipation, because God had centuries earlier made a covenant with King David. And the covenant that he made with David, the promise that he made to David, the treaty that he entered into with David, was that one day, one of David's offspring would be set on the throne forever. 
that there would be a king in the line of David who would establish an eternal reign, an eternal kingdom, that God would establish an everlasting rule through one of his descendants. We saw a glimpse of it in Psalm 89 in our Old Testament reading. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to my servant David, I will establish your descendants forever and I will build your throne for all generations. And so the people of God, as if they had returned from exile and they're sitting there in the land, they began to wait for the king to return. When is it that this king of David, this offspring of David, when is he going to come? When is he going to come and defeat our enemies? The Romans at the time of the first century, when is he going to come and deliver Israel? When's he going to deliver his people? When is he going to restore order? When is he going to restore the kingdom? When is he going to sit down on his throne and rule and reign forever? They're in the midst of so much turmoil and so much anxiety and so much unknown. They've been back to the land and they've rebuilt the temple, but they're still being ruled by pagans and they're still being persecuted in some ways. And life is not exactly the way that they want or hope or expect. It's not how God had promised yet. The kingdom hadn't been restored. So they're waiting and wondering. So this term Messiah, this term Christ carries with it all of that hope. And what the gospel writers are wanting us to know is that Jesus is this long expected heir to the throne. Jesus is this long-promised one. Jesus is this long-awaited one. Jesus is the one who comes in the line of David to do all of these things. He's the long-expected heir to the throne. And yet, at the very same time, as we read, we also discover that he's also the unexpected heir to the throne. Perhaps the most unexpected and maybe why there's so much debate around his identity, around who he is, because when Jesus came, he didn't defeat Rome. When Jesus came, he didn't deliver Israel in some dramatic way. He didn't restore David's rule right then and there. And then see some of these things happen because what we find out is that Jesus came not to defeat Rome but to defeat sin and Satan and death and the grave. That Jesus came to defeat something so much bigger. That Jesus came to defeat all evil. And Jesus came not just to deliver Israel, but he came to actually deliver everyone. He came to liberate all of creation. And he came not just to restore David's rule in this little small place, but he actually came to restore God's reign and rule over the entire cosmos. And he came not just to rule temporarily, but to actually rule forever. He came to do this. And the way he does it is in the most unexpected way. But Jesus is the long expected yet unexpected heir to the throne, the promised one, the anointed one, the smeared one, the Christ, the Messiah. This is who Jesus is. Second thing that comes out of Peter's mouth is he goes and he says, you are the Christ. And then he says, you're the son of the living God. You're the Messiah, and you're the Son of God, specifically the Son of Yahweh, the Son of the God of Israel, not the Son of just the generic God, but the Son of the God who had made all of these promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to David. It was Peter's way of sort of early on recognizing that in some way, Jesus is fully human and fully 
and truly divine. There's something more going on with Jesus than is going on with the average everyday person. The Nicene Creed put it this way. As the church is trying to figure out how do we describe who Jesus is, it says, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. And then they go and explain with big terms, how do we understand this? Eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. In other words, in every way, Jesus is God. This is who he is. As Paul puts it, Jesus, the Son, is the image of the invisible God. If we ever are curious, what is God like? How does God respond to people? How does God relate? What would God do in a situation? Paul says, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus because Jesus is God. He is the image of the invisible God. Matthew says in another passage that Jesus is Emmanuel, that he is God with us, that actually in the person of Jesus, God himself has come extremely near to his creation. He's actually entered into it. That somehow, in some way, God has become human without ceasing to be God. And we can spend the rest of our lives trying to wrap our mind around that idea. Because Jesus is not only the unexpected heir to the throne, he is also unexpectedly God in the flesh. That this is who Jesus is. To say that Jesus is the Son of God is to say that Jesus is God in the flesh. That he is both fully God and fully human. Both fully us and fully God. The human part is the part that's easy for everybody to accept. That even those who are outside of faith are like, yeah, he's a first century Jewish guy that died. It puts him in a category with a whole lot of other first century Jewish guys that died. But he changed the world because he's not only fully human, he's also divine. He's also God. And that's where the great dividing line comes up in so many of the conversations. Paul says it this way, because all the fullness of God is pleased to live in him. He reconciled all things to himself through him. See, Jesus is able to enact a great rescue. He is able to defeat evil and to deliver all people. He's able to do this. He's able to fulfill this mandate, this expectation of the Christ, of the Messiah. He's able to fill it in this grand way for everybody everywhere because he is God in the flesh. This is someone who is divine and human. So he acts this great deliverance and great victory because it's God himself coming in the flesh to do it. Colossians 1.16, because all things were created by him and through him and for him because of this, because Jesus has always existed and all things were created through him. All things were created for him. All things were created by him because he is God. Therefore, he's able to rule over everything. How is he able to do this? How are we able to say that Jesus is overall? It's because he's God. He's able to restore God's kingdom and reign forever over God's kingdom because he is God in the flesh. 
He is divine and he is human. Jesus has come to do this. But Jesus delivers, rescues, and he ascends to the throne in the most unexpected way. If we didn't expect the Messiah to come and do the things that Jesus did, if we didn't expect God himself to come as the Messiah, we also did not expect the third move that we see in this passage. Jesus delivers and Jesus reigns. He rescues and he reigns in the most unexpected way. Right after Peter's great proclamation, Peter has this bright and shiny moment. He's like, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And then Matthew tells us from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and legal experts. And they had to be killed and raised on the third day. You're the Christ. You're the son of God. You're right, Peter. And now I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to get killed. You imagine that moment for the disciples? Wait, 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 wait. I, I know there's some things that are unexpected here a little bit, Jesus. But now you've gone a bit too far. See, for Jesus to defeat evil, for Jesus to deliver his people, for Jesus to restore God's kingdom, for Jesus to reign forever on God's throne, but Jesus himself says that in order to do that, he must first suffer, die, and be raised from the dead. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine just maybe in like a smaller, less significant context, a new CEO coming in to take over a business Begins making promises about the great hope and future of the industry, the great hope and future of the company, and says, okay, so here's what we're going to do to start. We're going to sell off all of our assets, we're going to lay off all of our employees, and we're going to declare bankruptcy, and it's going to be awesome. Because after that, then something really great is going to happen, and we're going to rebuild this thing from the ground up. Can you imagine being a 25-year-old employee and saying, oh, that, that sounds like a great plan. Like, that's how you're going to do that? Or imagine a president taking office and saying, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to lose every, like, military battle that we can. We're going to see if we can tank the economy. We're going to see if, like, we can just be invaded from on all sides. We're going to see if everything could possibly go wrong, goes wrong. But then after that, guys, it's going to be fantastic. It's going to be really great. Just wait and see. Or maybe on a you know, less serious note, you know, the Broncos get a new quarterback. And they're like, this is it, guys. Peyton Manning, 2.0. And what we're going to do is we're going to go 0-17 for the next six years. We're going to achieve Detroit Lions status. But then after that, it's going to get great I think the Broncos are already trying this strategy, just to be, to be honest, like maybe a little too close to home. Sorry. Can you imagine? I, I'm, I'm the king that you've long waited for. I'm the one who's here to defeat your enemies. I'm the one that's here to rescue you. I'm the one that's here to reestablish God's reign and rule on the earth. And the first thing that I got to do is die. Can you imagine? No wonder Peter responds the way that he did. 
I think I would have responded worse than Peter, if I'm really honest. Peter just says, no way, that can't happen. I would have probably had a lot more choice things to say at that point, having left, you know, the fishing boat and followed this guy. Peter actually has the audacity to rebuke Jesus. It's like, no way, this can't happen. And Jesus returns the favor. <laughs> he rebukes him right back uh, and calls him Satan, uh, which is not exactly, you know, the kind of conversation you want to have with Jesus at any point. Get behind me, Satan. I'm not hoping to have that conversation. Peter and the rest of the disciples expected something entirely different. Everyone did. Everyone expected something entirely different. How is this good news? How is, how is it good news that you're going to rescue and reign by dying? How is the resurrection even possible? What do you even mean by that? They expected the Messiah to come. They expected the Messiah to defeat the Romans. They expected the Messiah to secure independence and restore Israel to its glory as in the time of David. This is how they expected the Messiah to reign and to rule, but Jesus rescues and he reigns through his death and his resurrection. This is the sort of critical space of who Jesus is. Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited, long-expected king, the one who's come in the Lion of David, the one who is fully human, and he is fully God, God in the flesh coming to do this long-expected and great work, recognizing that we've never been able to accomplish it ourselves. So God himself comes and he, inha he inhabits the world. He takes on flesh and blood, moves into the neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson says. And he comes and does it all, and then he goes to a cross. He dies and is raised again and ascends into heaven. Jesus rescues and reigns in the most unexpected way through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension, through the sending of the Spirit. And now we wait for the day for him to come back and to actually implement his reign in its entirety. I think this, maybe more than anything else, is why many people find it so difficult to believe in Jesus. How is that possible? How does that make sense? How, what? See, Jesus breaks all of our paradigms. He defies all of our expectations. In the midst of that, he asks us to trust. He asks for faith. He asks us to wholeheartedly believe in him and to follow him. He asks us to receive all of this and to actually believe who he says he is, to believe that he is the Christ, to believe that he is the Son of God, to believe that he did die to believe that he was raised again, to believe that he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father and to believe that he will come again. And that sense of believing is not just simply sort of like a mental thing, like, yeah, I can see how that's possible. Maybe that makes sense. It was an acceptance of him as a person and an allegiance to his reign, an allegiance to his way. And Jesus is asking us to put everything in him, to be devoted to him, to pledge our allegiance to him, to fall in love with him, to follow him, to trust him, that he is who he says he is, and that he will do all of these things. See, to have faith in Jesus 
is to receive his rescue, to recognize that we have been set free from the power of sin and death, that we have been rescued and redeemed by his cross and his resurrection, and it's to embrace his rule. It's to say, okay, Jesus, you're king. I'm not. I'm going to live my life under your reign, under your rule, according to your ways. To have faith in Jesus is to receive his rescue and his reign, not one or the other, but both.